It's Aaron here with a quick message from DraftKings before we start the show. Round two is no joke. It's where the pretenders are separated from the contender. Get some skin in the game with DraftKings, the leader in one-day fantasy sports. DK is offering new pools every day of the basketball playoffs, providing players a free shot at up to $10,000 in total prizes each day. The best part is that it's free to play. DraftKings free-to-play pools are easy to enter. Just download the DK app, go to pools, and choose from a wide variety of free contests for an opportunity to win cash prizes. All you have to do is answer a handful of questions around what you think is going to happen during that day's basketball game. Like for instance, are the Brooklyn Nets going to score 150 points in their next playoff game? Then you can track your results throughout the evening. Questions will range from which team will hit the most threes to which team will score first. DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable, so you can deposit and withdraw your money at your convenience. So if that sounds enticing, here's what you can do. Download the top-rated DraftKings app now and use promo code TBPN when you sign up to get your free shot at up to $10,000 in total prizes every day of the basketball playoffs. Head to DraftKings pool page to get your shot at huge cash prizes. That's promo code TBPN for a limited time, only at DraftKings. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for full details. Hey, this is Katie Wingy, and you're listening to On the NBA Beat. You're listening to the On the NBA Beat podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant to shoot. LeBron James with no regard for human life. Jordan. And now, your hosts, Lauren Lee Chen and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. Hey listeners, it's Lauren here with another episode of On the NBA Beat. We're about a week and a half into the 2021 NBA playoffs right now, and while some series have already wrapped up, others are still to be decided. One team that is hoping to punt their ticket into the second round is the Brooklyn Nets, who hold a 3-1 series lead over the Boston Celtics before Tuesday night's Game 5. To help us delve into the Nets' season and their keys to success in the first round and beyond, we've brought on Chris Milholland, a writer and reporter for SB Nation's Nets Daily and co-host of the Wingspan podcast. A fun fact about Chris is that he was able to attend the NBA 2K19 launch event as a reporter and had two interesting experiences while covering the event. First, he was one of the few reporters wearing a suit, which caused Milwaukee Bucks star Giannis Antetokounmpo to mistake him for event staff and follow him around for a while. At the same event, he also had the opportunity to play a quick game of 2K with D'Angelo Russell. I'll let Aaron start the interview in a second, but one brief note before we get started. During recording, we did experience some technical issues, so you might notice that in the audio quality of some parts of the conversation. We hope that doesn't distract too much from the quality information that Chris was able to provide. Without further ado, here's Aaron and Chris. Hey Chris, thanks a lot for joining us. Are you ready for some captivating net discussion? I'm ready. Let's get it. 
Yeah, let's do it. It's such an exciting time in Brooklyn. Playoff basketball ramping up. So just to start with a broad takeaway, kind of like a, a 10,000 foot view of how the Nets have looked so far in their series against Boston, I think that would be a terrific starting point if you'd like to begin there. Yeah, well, the series against Boston, obviously, you know, it's 3-1. The Nets have that lead, and obviously they go back tomorrow, Tuesday, uh, June 1st, to take on the Celtics in Game 5, looking to close out the series in front of their sold-out Barclays crowd. And, you know, this whole series, you know, you you learned a lot, right? Because in the regular season, which I can imagine we're going to touch on a little later, the big three haven't really played much together. They played eight games in the regular season together. And obviously this series, we have got to see a full four games of, okay, this is what this team could really be when these big three serve as the crowd silencers or they serve as the main offensive options in that kind of Brooklyn system. So throughout this whole series, like the things that really stuck out to me was, hey, like this is exactly what we thought the big three would be, right? So when you looked at uh, last night's game, uh, game four, the big three combined for 104 points and 141, 126 for the final score. And obviously there were many milestones to follow after that from the big three to points scored, playoff records, almost everything was shattered throughout the whole entire game. And what's even more staggering was the the shooting split between the big three was 57-59-97. That alone shows the offensive power. And on top of that, too, Obviously, everyone knows the type of offensive presence and the gifted uh, style of offense that the Nets can play with these three players. It's arguably the most prolific offense the NBA has ever seen. But their defense has also held up pretty well, right? Because that was one of the major concerns was outside of chemistry. How would their defense look? So you just yeah. see what they've done throughout the Celtics this whole time, especially with this net switching defense that um, they've really done a good job of kind of trapping Tatum and restricting the other two options with their Fournier and, and Marcus Smart. And, and same thing with Thompson. Obviously, Thompson has been a bully on the boards. And that's one of those also those other issues that the Nets have is kind of gang reba- rebounding and rebounding as a whole because they don't really have that size. And with DeAndre Jordan, he hasn't played in nine of the last 10 games. And mostly he's just out of the rotation now. So they've been going with Claxton, obviously the injury with Jeff Green. He's going to be uh, reevaluated roughly around six days or so because he's going off a strained plastia uh, in the foot. So um, when you look at all the stuff and how the Nets been able to kind of mix and match and kind of go through lineups, you know, throughout the regular season, 39 different starting lineups. It's second behind Houston for the NBA record of that past season. And seeing the type of versatility that they have gone through and that next man up mentality, seeing different players step up in big moments. Sometimes it can be Joe Harris, Landry Shamit, and then other guys like we saw last night on the defensive side, Nick Claxton with four the career high four blocks and only eight minutes of play. So it's been a fun time watching this team. You get to learn a lot. And um, especially from this series, it could be a foregone conclusion that the Nets are going to close it out tomorrow in front of their Barclays Center crowd. And then when you go and look ahead to Milwaukee, that's go, that's really where the fun's going to start. Yeah, you cited a lot of really interesting topics, and Lauren and I are going to do our best to follow up on a lot of those specific ones throughout the conversation. Where I wanted to begin was more about the big three and the short amount of time that they've spent on the court with one another. What are some of the challenges, if any, both with adapting to one another on the court and also as far as the decisions that Steve Nash has to make in terms of staggering minutes and what he has to consider while he's still 
getting accustomed to these three playing together. Yeah, you know, that's the that's the money question right there, right? Because like I said, in the regular season, they only played eight games together. And in these playoffs, they're using these playoffs as a as also a method, even though these games are the biggest games of the season, not, no questions, the playoffs, it's the postseason. But they're also using this time to gel together. So you've seen in this Boston series how their offense works, right? They really thrive off ball movement, and they have really used Joe Harris as that fourth option to create space. And when you look at kind of what, what since Jeff Green has gone down, that floor spacing has minimized. And you, you also see, too, especially with the postseason and with DeAndre Jordan, obviously, like we talked about, out of the rotation, the Nets are looking to more, more so go small, which is arguably, well, that's, that's kind of their best offense, how they run it through when they go, do go small. And they put Green at the five, Joe Harris at the four, and then they have the big three on top. So when you just look at the big three in general, when you look at the staggering minutes and stuff, KD is always the one that kind of seems to be on the court with another big three member. So James Harden, we saw, okay, he, he got a couple second unit minutes last time conducting that second unit. Sometimes it's Irving conducting that second unit, giving them that spark off the bench. And then like Nash says, mostly Steve Nash as a coach, he's very big on going with the flow of the game rather than sticking, obviously, as a game plan. But when it comes to staggering the big three's minutes, he bases off the flow of the game. So last night, for example, in, that, in the beginning of the second quarter, entering that second quarter, the Celtics had a 34-33 lead. And you saw right away that Harden was commanding that second unit and then Irving came in. And then when you had Durant kind of go on top of it, that's when the offense started to flow. And the good thing about this Nets team is what they're starting to really realize is that they could their, their best offense really comes when they have that intensity on the defensive end. Because when they do the gang rebounding, when they really capitalize on their switches and not miss assignments – they could really get out and get running in the early offense. That's something that we've seen throughout this whole series and how dangerous that lineup can be. Because in that early offense situation with Harden, KD, Kyrie, and then outside the big three where you have Joe Harris, whoever the case is, the big three gravitates so much. They mostly pull so much gravity, especially the person that has the ball, that the other defenders are kind of get lost with, okay, you got to pick up Joe Harris in transition. And then Joe Harris could give you a big three. You got Landry Shamit. You have Bruce Brown running the floor as well. You got other options as well. So that's what I really kind of caught from this series, especially with the big three. Then on top of that, like with the big three in general, like I said before, like at the end of the day, they're still learning how to play together. And there's and obviously last night when people see the, the headlines and look at the box score, the big three score 104 of the Nets, 141 points. Like, yeah, that's probably going to be sustainable throughout the playoffs, but obviously to a lesser degree. But at the same time, they're still getting people involved. And the one thing throughout this whole regular season that we've seen, too, is that these all these three players, Harding, Kyrie, and Kevin, they're all in that point of their career where they want to win. James Harden came here because he wanted to get a championship. He doesn't have that championship. He's been willing to not kind of score the ball at an efficient clip like he did in Houston or have that demand of, hey, he needs to score this amount of points in order to lift his team to win. Yesterday we saw he had 18 assists, then he also put up great numbers scoring the ball. And then you look at other guys, obviously Kevin Durant, he's like kind of their main go-to scorer. And then Kyrie Irving as well, you know, he's he's been doing well. And then the Celtics have been giving him trouble in the two-man game, which he really thrives off of. But overall, you know, like this first-round series, the big takeaway from the big three is that they're using this time to still gel together and mesh. Yeah, you can clearly certain times where it seems like it's kind of like preseason or early in the season where there are those stretches. Even for the offense, which 
seems a little surprising for an offense that could be so explosive. But again, they are so new with playing with one another. So it does make sense, but they've had those stretches where they just score so explosively and and then it makes you forget about those other lulls. But I just wanted you to touch on what you're expecting in game five and how Brooklyn should be able to handle their Boston opponent going forward. Yeah, well, I think first off that with the Nets, they're they're one of those few teams that are able to really sell out an arena, you know, because they have a lighter COVID restriction compared to most states, and they really fed off the energy in games one and two, right, with the crowd noise. It was so kind of infectious, the crowd noise, that the players in game one even admitted that, hey, it took a couple minutes to get used to that crowd noise back and have those fans in the stand, see them in the front row. And Obviously, game five, two games in the books with really a sellout crowd in their standards, obviously, with the capacity restrictions. But on top of that, you know, the Nets play best is when they come out strong. And that's a theme in this series that you have really seen when the Nets have been really kind of just, I guess you could say, sum it up in a whole, that when the Nets do come out strong, it really sucks all the momentum out and the belief of Boston. And especially if you looked at the records and everything at the Nets when they lead after one and they lead after two and they come out strong, it leaves a a desperate team like Boston, especially in game five when it's the winner go home for Boston. When they suck out that momentum and they do, they focus on the smaller details. You've heard Kevin Durant all season and even into this postseason. As long as the Nets can really capitalize on those smaller details, such as rebounding, uh, ball security, being careful with passes, limiting turnovers. Just the small cleanup little things, that's when the Nets offense really thrives, and especially when you got a big crowd behind you. That and obviously we all saw what happened in game four, and we know the history between the Celtics and the Nets, especially focused around Kyrie Irving. The Nets don't want to return back to Boston for a game six. Kevin Durant said that yesterday. It's hopefully we don't have to see these guys anymore for the rest of the year. So you know that closing out the series is on their mind now. So with some things I expect in this, I, I do expect a high, a big score performance again from the big three. I don't know if it's going to be 104 points, but I definitely think it's going to be something where they hold the majority of the net scoring. I think Joe Harris is going to have a big night tomorrow. I think because when Joe Harris gets going, it makes everyone's life easier for the Nets because of spacing and just when the Nets play with space, especially when you have Joe Harris in space or running in transition and you have that gravity like I talked about, uh, luring towards the big three. That leads to wide open threes. We've seen in games one and two that when Joe Harris even gets going, that the defense gets a little stagnant and they lean. They're like, oh, we have to pick up. We have to pick up Joe. And when they do pick up Joe and you go on the weak side, you see James Harden wide open for a three or Kyrie Irving in the corner for a three or whatever. The, like, the, the spacing is really what makes this team lethal on the offensive end. So overall, I do, I do expect the Nets to close it out. I think Jason Tatum will have another good game. I don't think he'll have a uh, game two performance like he did. Well, game three, a 50 point. But I think that he'll make up a lot of the the scoring for the Celtics. I do expect the Nets to really restrict and limit Fournier, Marcus Smart, and even Trenton Thompson on the boards and in the restricted area. Hey, Chris, it's Lauren here now. Thank you again for joining us today. Um, I just wanted to follow up on what you mentioned as one of the, I think, few remaining questions around Brooklyn. And that's with their defense. In the regular season, they were in the bottom third of the teams in the NBA in defensive rating. How big of an issue do you think that is going forward for Brooklyn? Or do you think that maybe doesn't really matter when, I think you mentioned, they have probably the top offense in NBA history now? 
Yeah, well, you know, it's definitely a major concern because the farther you go in the playoffs, it's the tougher opponents. And if you look at the Nets' path, obviously Milwaukee's awaiting them. And the more dangerous thing about that is Milwaukee's awaiting them with two games that they could scout Brooklyn on, which are game four and then tomorrow's game five. And at the end of the day, they're they're well-rested. So they are going to make those adjust those early adjustments and really kind of put themselves in their shoes for like they did in game four and game five. But like, you know, with defense, it's not it's, it, the Nets are a very interesting team, right? Because I hit it on it before with it's one of those things where if the Nets could really bring that defensive intensity and they could really capitalize on that switching defense more so than having those regular season adjustments and those growing woes and learning how to play together, then I think they will be good against Milwaukee. But at the same time, Milwaukee is going to po- poise a lot of those problems. You look at obviously – you're going to have to build a wall to stop Giannis uh, down the lane. You're going to have then when obviously you convert that wall, you're really banking on a lot of shooters outside the perimeter to not get hot and get going. And then you look at other things, you know, uh, across the board, like what Lopez did against Milwaukee as being that cleanup guy, that walling off the paint and really just doing a good job of erasing the paint. The Nets need to do that against Milwaukee. So this is kind of where, where my one concern is looking ahead to that series is you have DeAndre Jordan who hasn't played in the postseason yet. And I'm surprised that Steve Nash hasn't given him some minutes in this Boston series to at least get his feet wet and get back into game shape because it's different from playing in practice to playing in a game, especially in a playoff game, as we all know. But, you know, it's, it's going to be one of those things. And, and James Harden kind of hit on this last night after the game. He mostly just said that defensively is going to be – it's their key every single game. And offense is obviously one of those things that, he, in his words, that it should be the last thing they worry about. And when you look at the Nets switching defense, kind of just as a whole in general, what they've done against the Celtics at least is, yeah, the Jason Tame's going to get his points, he's going to get his shots, but they really contest those shots. There wasn't really a look for Jason Tatum that was a clean look in game two. In game four yesterday, we saw a couple clean looks, but those were outside the perimeter on sidestep threes or step back threes, whatever the case is. So with the switching defense, it's really going to come down to those minor details because if the Nets can capitalize on those minor details of kind of not letting the other opposing, well, mostly letting the opposition feed off any momentum off offensive rebounds, which we've seen against the Celtics series mostly careless turnovers, you know, because offense, the Nets offense is really, well, the Nets defense converts that into offense and it works vice versa as well. If the Nets aren't doing well defensively, their offense is going to be very stagnant. So the defense is kind of like that backbone to kind of their whole offense to an extent where they need to capitalize off those details. Just sum it up as a whole. It is a worry. And once you see game one and see how game one of the Milwaukee series does go, especially how they kind of plan for, Giannis, and then you got P.J. Tucker as well and other things. Because obviously it's, it's, it was clear what the adjustments Milwaukee made uh, against the Nets on defense. But when the Nets could get in that switching defense, and like I said, they put in that extra effort, they really just kind of do the small things and capitalize on the small things, I think they'll be all right. And just quickly as a follow-up to that, do you think the Nets will still go with a lot of small ball-type lineups in the Milwaukee series? Or... Do you think someone like DJ will get a little bit more run in that series than this one? Yeah, that's a good question. I think I think it depends on Jeff Green's health because with Jeff Green, he when he when he was diagnosed with that foot sprain, he was he was said he's getting reevaluated in ten days. That doesn't mean he's coming back in ten days. And these past couple of games, you have seen him in a walking boot. 
in game three. You saw him on crutches going through the arena. And that's like the Nets' best weapon when they want to go small because his floor spacing, he's a threat from the corners. He's having career highs in offensive rating, effective field goal percentage, three-point shooting. And obviously, at the end of the day, it's all through D'Antoni's system, which he's accustomed to. So when you just look at the Nets going small, with that, with the Jeff Green injury, Claxton has got the benefit of getting that roll increase. And he has done fairly well, but he obviously had a rough first two games against Robert Williams and other type of versatile bigs like, well, you saw what he did with Tristan Thompson. He just, out phys- he just outplayed him physically. So I think it's going to depend a lot on the health status of Jeff Green, whether they're going to go small or not. I think if they don't play, if they really just don't play DJ in this series, I think it could be a foregone conclusion that they're not going to utilize him much in the Milwaukee series. I think they may bring him in. Because it's kind of like Nash, especially in this series, was going to bring in DJ for emergency purposes only. So if that's if Nick Claston got in foul trouble or Blake Griffin was just having a better God foul trouble as well, whatever the case is. And with Blake, too, like Blake could be a good small ball option. We've seen it and stuff. But throughout the Celtics series, we have seen the Celtics push him to take those dare shots from three because they don't think he's necessarily a threat beyond there. Yeah, he can make threes, but he's not going to make that at an effective rate that he becomes a threat when it comes to spreading the floor and bringing his play outside the perimeter. So it's, I think I think overall, depending on where they go small, I think they do primarily go small, but I think a lot of it also depends on when they get Jeff Green back. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now I, I want to zoom out a little bit and talk more generally about what you've seen from Steve Nash this season. Obviously his first season as a Nets head coach, but his first season really in any sort of coaching position beyond being a player development consultant with the Warriors. Just sort of what you've seen in terms of his style of coaching and how it's worked for the Nets so far this year. Yeah, sure. So with Steve, obviously everyone knows that he was brought in when you have a team with Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and then obviously when Steve was hired, James Harden wasn't a part of the team yet. But Steve Nash's main thing when he got brought in as the head coach was to manage these personalities and have someone in the coaching chair that everyone on the roster respects and will always put above, right? Because in the NBA, you see a lot of players and especially a lot of superstar teams, their egos can get in the way of things. And when Steve Nash got brought in, obviously the history with Kevin Durant speaks for itself with Golden State. Obviously he had high respect for Irving. We've seen kind of the history goes on of him on kind of praising Irving for his athleticism, his skilled basketball play. So Steve Nash was mostly a coach that went under the radar. No one really saw that hiring coming when it did happen. But at the end of the day, they brought him in to kind of manage these personalities and someone that could have the full locker room support behind. And you, you brought up the Golden State point, which obviously is the main backbone to his relationship with Kevin Durant. But a lot of people also forget that Steve Nash was the general manager of Team Canada for, I think it was from 2010 when he was entering his Lakers career to about 2014 before he joined the Warriors. And on that team, yeah, that obviously doesn't give a lot of coaching experience. You're not on the floor with these guys, but at the same time, you know how to manage players. And throughout this whole entire year, obviously the Nets talent speaks for itself and it may overshadow a lot of Steve's efforts. But another aspect of kind of his whole tenure throughout this year as the Nets coach is that the Nets also surrounded him with an elite coaching staff for a rookie head coach to develop in. So you see just along the whole bench, you got Mike D'Antoni, a coach not only that Steve Nash played under in his best years in Phoenix, and really kind of implemented that seven or seconds or less offense. But you could see that when you look at the Nets offense throughout this whole entire year, even into this postseason, you could see D'Antoni's fingerprints are all over this. 
you could go a year back and look at the Houston play and then compare it to now, you could just see the differences. Obviously, you guys, basketball minds like yourself, you guys could probably see that right away. And then you look at the defensive-minded head coach, Ime Udoka. He made his reputation with Philly being that defensive-minded coach. He has a very long-stretched coaching resume himself. And then the Nets retained Jack Vaughn. Vaughn was one of those guys that really capitalized in the bubble with the opportunity that he had when Kenny Atkinson was let go, right? Because in the Nets, when they're in the bubble, they didn't have Katie, they didn't have Kyrie, they didn't have any of their stars. They were really battling with COVID, so they were very restricted on their talent. And Jack Vaughn was still able to make that postseason run somewhat competitive and have the Nets play as those gritty underdogs like we all used to know them as. Again, in the Toronto series when Paul Pierce and KG was there and throughout this whole kind of leading up to this era of basketball that the Nets are now. But overall, you know, like just based off of why Steve Nash was brought in here, he ended up being obviously talent speaks for itself, but he ended up having the the best winning percentage of a Nets head coach in NBA history once the regular season ended. Road record, you know, throughout this whole entire series, multiple records have been shattered. Foregone conclusion on that. But when you kind of just look at what he was brought in here to do, he's easily overexceeding that role. I'm very curious to talk to you and learn more about your thoughts on Blake Griffin. He was acquired in early March from the buyout market, previously a member of the Detroit Pistons, of course. And naturally, given the roster that he's a part of, he's taking the fewest shots of his NBA career, but he's been extremely efficient. And we've also seen him turn back the clock a little bit, some of his acrobatic dunks. How does he fit into this team? And what will be needed from him moving forward if the Nets are to achieve their ultimate goal? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, because, you know, with Blake, he's the, he's that prime example. You know, he could be used as that example of this is what happens when a star gets a fresh start, right? Because in Detroit and, and even in L.A. when he was there, he was always obligated to put up big numbers in order for their team to win, right? We saw that with the Clippers, especially the, you know with, even with CP3 and DJ and that kind of whole era. And then Detroit, obviously, what happened this past season when he was there, you know, his, his role started to diminish a little bit. Then he got set and then it was OK that they're moving on from him. When you look at Blake so far this year, you know, he's not he wasn't brought in to be that star player. He was brought in to be a role player. You know, the Nets have a very good I guess you could say they have a very good image of treating their stars. And with Blake, you know, he's he he was banged up in, with his knees and when he got to Brooklyn, the Nets had him ramp up at his own pace before he even took the court because he, they wanted him to ramp up. He didn't play for nearly a month of basketball. And when he came in, just throughout this whole entire year, you see what Blake kind of has, his value really is. And that's kind of just being, having that veteran leadership, but also mix it in with that physical play. And someone that's kind of just has that versatility element where, hey, yeah, he transformed his game than what we all know him as or used to know him as is that high flyer dunker on the Clippers, that highlight machine. Now he can shoot threes. He, he picks and pops. You know, you see all these little stuff here and there. And that's that's kind of a perfect ingredient for this Nets offense to kind of absorb. Overall, when you just look at Blake and what he's done, obviously now he's kind of cemented himself as that four option. And even, you know, sometimes this whole postseason we've seen he plays that five it's going to be interesting to see how it works in the playoffs because you you have seen him being out physically played by Tristan Thompson and obviously Tristan Thompson is a man in himself he beats Blake by a couple pounds very physical on the glass he's a traditional big man 
And when you look down in Milwaukee, then you got Lopez, who's, who's a different dynamic of a, of a player. Like we talked about, like I mentioned earlier, he's that cleanup guy. And he did a really good job walling off that paint. So it's going to be interesting to see how Blake really adjusts in that switching defense when Brooke Lopez is kind of just doing that staple job of erasing the paint and not allowing or allowing the Nets to really just restrict that ball movement because that's where they really don't play their best offense is when the ball isn't moving and they go into isolation because they're not isolation. In isolation, yeah, they do score. I think it's like 1.92 points or something like that in isolation. But at the same time, you do have Kevin Durant those isolation plays. And you saw what the Bucs did. They pushed him to the corners instead of letting him get in the post. And that could obviously build up a lot of fatigue over time and stuff. But just getting back to Blake, you know, he's mostly met expectations in his role. He wasn't brought in to be a star. He was mostly brought in to, okay, you know what, give the guys a little bit of veteran leadership, be that punch at the five, have that versatility. You could shoot a couple threes, you mix in that offense. But, you know, he's still learning about in this uh, Celtic series too. When you just look at what he's done in this series, he has looked a little bit lost on the defensive end, especially in that switching defense because the Celtics do like to switch a lot, especially when they lost Jalen Brown. You see that they, they're really trying to get as many people hot as possible. So Milwaukee, obviously, they'll simmer down a little bit. Uh, aside from obviously losing Dante DiVincenzo, they're going to have Brent Forbes heat up a little bit. Speaking of Landry Emmett specifically, he's kind of disappeared at times, and that's been a problem throughout his young career in the postseason. He was a pretty solid player during the regular season, and he's a streaky three-point shooter, too. When he's on, he's on, and that allows his teams to stretch the floor and, and that makes the Brooklyn offense even more difficult to defend. How important do you think getting some semblance of consistency from him will be for Brooklyn? or is whatever you get from him kind of more of just like a bonus. And then I also wanted to add a quick thing. Would he maybe be one of the bigger X factors among Nets we haven't yet mentioned, or is there someone else that we've yet to discuss? What's the shame it obviously he scored, I think he scored like 15 combined points throughout this whole series and two of the four games he's gotten scoreless and, and, you know, he didn't really shoot that ball. And he didn't really get a lot of minutes in, the, in those scoreless games. But the Nets are going to need him to heat up and start putting up some points on the board because, yes, he does come off the bench, but he's a big spark off the bench, especially when you have him going as well. In that second unit, that's someone that the Nets can really rely on in that second unit. Because when you look at the starters, you have Joe Harris serving as that main sharpshooting role. And then, as we all seen throughout this whole season, Joe Harris is more than just a shooter. He's done a very good job of developing his game a rim runner, being an aggressive driver, being a cutter. We've seen those aspects of his game. So when you look at Landry Sham as a whole, he, he's got to get going for the purpose of the second unit because if the second unit can't grab a lot of traction and really mostly maintain any type of momentum or hold a lead or whatever the case is, that just means more minutes for the starters and more demand on them. So as James Harden and all these guys have said, each night's going to be a different guy to step up. And I think Landry Shannon is definitely on their list for one of those guys to really step up. Yes, he's a shooter. He's streaky. And, but at the same time, when you have a shooter like that going and you, when you get those guys touches, cause we've seen in this series and throughout the regular season, the big three like to get a lot of role players getting going early. We've seen, Count, I would say out of the seven two two games, a rough estimate, maybe 40 of them or 30 of them, Joe Harris has taken the first shot to open up the game on the offensive end. 
like just get him going, get him in a rhythm, get him loose. So if the Nets can really just do that with Landry Shannon as their second unit shooter, it's going to go a long way in value. And then to the X-Factor point, you know, when you look at X-Factors, obviously it's series-based. But when you look at the Milwaukee series, that X factor, I think, well, it was it was Jeff Green in my point when before he got injured. But with him injured and his status is out, it's going to be very, very interesting to see who the Nets can really get going and have consistent play throughout this Milwaukee series. Because you look at guys, you have obviously KD Hart and Kyrie, they speak for themselves, their offense can come. Then you got Blake Griffin, like we talked about as well. He could serve as that main type of vocal point with the physicality of making that known and having that presented already out saying, Hey, we're physical. You know, you can really command that aspect of the game. You know, in in the Milwaukee series, it's simply going to be Joe Harris. Like I said before, when Joe Harris gets going and when he's shooting four, when he's making four threes, five threes, and and it's not just, he's chucking them up. He's making them at an effective rate. He's four for seven, four for six. And when he doesn't get going earlier, when he misses a lot of threes, he stops taking threes. And one thing about Joe's game that a lot of people kind of overlook is when his shooting isn't falling, especially from behind the arc, that he gets himself involved and makes easy, makes cutting passes, makes layups, try to find a rhythm inside the paint. I think Joe Harris is definitely an X factor. One other guy I could see as an X factor as well, even though he hasn't played a lot of minutes, is Tyler Johnson. Because Tyler Johnson's one of those guys that, yeah, he he's kind of in and out of the playoff rotation. He's not getting too much minutes. But when your offensive stagnant, he you could have him as an insurance thing. Because when you see, obviously, Irving has played off the ball fairly a lot throughout this whole se- throughout this whole series. James Harden making the point, but with Tyler Johnson, you could have him as that ball handler. But at the same time, he plays better when he's kind of off the ball and he's shooting in this offense. So that, that's another guy I would throw in there. Claxton, you know, Claxton's one of those guys that has a lot of potential, but at the end of the day, he's still very young. Counting game four, he only had 51 games or 52 games of total NBA experience because he's been banged up through injuries throughout the two-year tenure. When you look at him, if he could re- if he could kind of make his presence known on the defensive end, that's someone that could serve as an X-factor as well. But those the, I would say those three are my clear X-factors, but if Jeff Green could come back healthy, he's the clear X-factor in that series. Looking forward to the Milwaukee matchup. We've talked about them a lot over the course of this podcast already. They're sort of the opposite of the Nets in that, you know, we've talked a lot about the big three still getting used to playing together. Milwaukee's core has a lot of continuity other than adding Drew Holiday this season. They've essentially been together for several seasons. What are your biggest impact factors with that matchup? I'm not confident that that's going to beat them. I've, I've been vocal that, hey, I wouldn't be surprised if Milwaukee took this series at six based off that common experience and how they looked in the first round. Obviously, it's they went against a lesser opponent than what are they going to play against Brooklyn here. But when you look at what Milwaukee did in that miniseries, that back-to-back miniseries at the regular at the end of the regular season, it's still a tiebreaker from the Nets. They, they pressed him to the corners and allowing him to get to his spots. You saw what Drew Holiday did too, balancing that strength and being that handsy defender on Irving and Harden. Kind of limits that two game, two man game. He also limits that ISO possession where the Nets really thrive, especially when the ball movement isn't isn't working or isn't flowing as effective as possible. When you looked at that series too, like when the ball movement's restricted for this Nets team, they, their offense just can't flow fluidly. You look at Kevin Durant, he goes to the ISO. You look at Kyrie ISO, which aren't bad moves, which they have banked on and that it has benefited. 
but you can't keep going to that throughout a course of a game because that's just going to build up fatigue. It's not going to really get the role players in the sink like we talked about being Joe Harris being the X factor. You know, if you really get him going, then they're in good shape. But the issues that the well, the foregone issues that you could see clearly without even seeing the a game one of this series being played is the rebounding and the boxing out. The Nets got bullied in that aspect because you saw what they did is Milwaukee, obviously, they lost Dante DiVincenzo, who had a career at 15 rebounds. Six of them were offensive rebounds. They're a very aggressive team. And like but like I mentioned before, when you limit those, when the Nets aren't doing those small details and then the ball isn't moving, it's just not, it's going to be a very stagnant offense. And it, they're going to really have to bank on someone to really just get hot and get going, whether that's KD, Kyrie, or Harden. So, you know, it's and that common experience isn't beaten. As we all know, as we all at the end of the day, we're all basketball fans. We all know that a common experience plays its pays its difference in the postseason. That's what really makes the difference between championship team playoff contenders is that common experience and that chemistry. And throughout the Celtic series, like I mentioned, the Nets have been using that time to not only, OK, let's just get past Boston, and get to Milwaukee. But they've also been using that time to really just gel together as a unit. Because before in game one of the series with that lineup of that big three lineup with Harris and Jeff, that was the first time they played together. And when you look at what the Bucks can do, and we saw a little bit of it, a little bit in the Celtic series, that the Nets have used staggered screens to kind of take advantage of the Celtic switching. You could do that against Milwaukee to an extent, but they're so good at kind of walling off the paint, which is going to impact that ball movement. So it's it's going to be an interesting series, I think, with Giannis. It's going to be interesting to see how they defend him and how how well they defend him, especially you know in in certain moments where the momentum is going to be on the Bucks side in away games and stuff like that. So the Bucks are one of those teams we've seen it. They got a requisite shooting and a strong defensive background, and on top of that, they can win games in multiple ways. So it's definitely going to be a series to watch. Do you feel comfortable giving a prediction of? who's going to win in number of games for that series? Yeah, I, I would have to go Milwaukee in six. And if it goes seven, I think that that's good. I think that I think that's how it's going to play out. Nice, nice. If the Nets are able to get past the Bucks next series, what do you see as like the remaining challenges for the Nets this season to go all the way? If everything pans out how everyone expects it, you know, Philly's going to meet him in the Easter Conference Finals. And when you have this series like this where, okay, go five games against the Celtics, if they win tomorrow. And then, like I mentioned with with uh, the Milwaukee series, it's likely to go six or seven. I would not be surprised if the series went seven. So when you have all that, and then you go up against Joel Embiid, who has been an infamous Nets killer throughout his whole entire tenure in the NBA, and we've seen what he could do. The Nets don't really have a, a strong option to really lock him down and get going. Obviously, like I'm saying, you have Blake who could play physical with him, but then you got De- DeAndre Jordan who doesn't have that rebounding ability like he once is. He's not really that agile on his feet. And at the end of the day, Joel Embiid's one of those guys that could stretch his player along the, the perimeter. So when you look at those past matchups against the Nets and the Sixers, DeAndre Jordan kind of put himself at the nail, saw what Joel Embiid did. But if you give him a lot of space, a lot of time to shoot a three, he's going to he's he could shoot that at a good clip, especially if it's straight on. We've seen that in the first round series, how he could get going beyond the arc. And then uh, another problem with Philly is that when Joel Embiid, Joel Embiid has really transformed his game, the one aspect of his game that's really caught my eye from last season to this season is his ability to read the double team. 
is when he grabs the ball, he scans the floor so fast, he sees who the double team is going to be, what player it's going to be, what side he's coming off of. And Joel can make that extra pass, and the Sixers really bank off their ball movement as well. So if Joel could pass that ball out or make a skip pass or find a cutter and stuff, that's just going to really have them go. Um, it's not going to be kind of a pretty game for them. Because if you double, if you leave him in single coverage, Joel is just going to blow by whoever it is. And if you double him, then you got to be cautious about your off your off ball activity, making sure, hey, you're you're blocking off the lane. You got to watch cutters. Maybe there's a guy rotating around the perimeter. So that that's another thing. And I think the Nets have a good shot at Philly. I think, in my opinion, I think Milwaukee poises more of a threat than Philly does. Because with Philly, we saw Tobias Harris be that kind of elite role player like he is. You know, he's stepped up. He's made a lot of big baskets for them in the first round series. He's done a lot of that. But at the end of the day, when you go up against Milwaukee and see how they're going to poison, how they're going to work out, it's going to be a, it's going to be a great series overall. And I think this is going to be the last question. But now looking way way ahead into the future, who do you think would be a Western Conference opponent who would be the most threatening to face in a potential Finals matchup? You know, I've had, I've had the Lakers throughout the whole season, and I'm not a guy that really goes against my own word once I said it. You know, but Anthony Davis's groin injury is a big thing. You know, I think a lot of people are downplaying that issue because groin injuries. We saw what ha- we saw what happened. Obviously, the most we've seen was LeBron last year, and the West is going to be interesting. You know, because I, I, I once I saw Phoenix go into the playoffs, and I was like, okay, the, the Celtics aren't necessarily healthy. I thought if they get past the Celtics, that I mean the the Lakers, if they get past the Lakers, then they they have a chance to kind of really make a run at it. But, you know, the Clippers have been looking good. And then you look at other teams in the West, like Utah. I'm kind of a fan of Utah. I just don't think that they have enough to really get past that path. But I still believe that the Lakers will make the finals. I think the Lakers, if the Nets do make the finals, I think the Lakers will meet them down the road. Yep, it's a long road ahead. There's no easy opponents once we get this far, but good luck to you and good luck to the Nets. Thank you so much for spending the time talking Nets with us today. Of course, thank you guys for having me as always, and I really appreciate the opportunity.